Good morning, my name is Andre Willemse. The scripture reading today comes from the New Testament book of Luke. I will be reading from chapters 10, verses 3 to 7. Hear the word of the Lord. Now go and remember that I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals. And don't stop to greet anyone on the road. Whenever you enter someone's home, first say, May God, God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If they're not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Don't hesitate to accept hospitality, because those who work deserve their pay. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, many TV sitcom homes are just constructions of a studio and a back lot, but there are some that are actual homes that you can purchase and live in. So I want to take a parade of sitcom homes, and we're going to look at how much they were most recently looked, uh, listed for on the market, okay? So the first home is the classic Brady Bunch home uh, in North Hollywood, California. It should be noted that this house is an actual house, but was for the outdoor views only. So the inside of the Brady Bunch home was actually a studio. But this is a real house, and it was most recently listed for $1.8 million. Okay, so that gets you the Brady Bunch home. I think HGTV actually purchased it to do a rehab on it. You can look it up. Um, but yeah, you're all like, oh yeah, I knew about that, Bill. Give me something new. <laughs> Apparently you all knew. Okay. Uh, Mary Tyler Moore's uh, flat. Was she the third floor flat, supposedly? This, uh, this house is in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and the house went for $1.5 million, or at least that's what it was listed for uh, most recently. So Mary Tyler Moore. Oh. Um, Beverly Hillbillies estate is in Bel Air, California, and a fun fact about this is when it was listed, it was the most expensive property in the United States at... $350 million. So it was the most expensive property listed in the United States when it was listed on the market, the estate for the Beverly Hillbillies. The Batman, the Wayne Manor, Wayne Manor uh, in Pasadena, California is $10 million. That's what that was listed for, so you can own a piece of Batman. Uh, this one is going to make you sad, but I feel like you all knew it already. So the, the Happy Days house is not in Milwaukee. Uh, it's in Los Angeles, California. And I got to thinking, I mean, I only watched a few episodes of Happy Days, but see that palm tree in the back? I mean, they have had to have height hidden that, you know, otherwise they would be like, that's not Milwaukee, you know, <laughs> right? So either that didn't grow up there or somehow they hid that palm tree. Um, but that was listed for $3.5 million in Los Angeles, California. Uh, the Full House House in San Francisco, uh, that was Slangwaz. You ever drive past this? Okay, all right, yeah, you drove past. Um, that was uh, listed for $4.6 million for that, uh, the full house house. Um, this is a little more affordable, okay? So the Wonder Years house in um, Burbank, California, that'll, that's under a million at 970000 So there you go, a little more affordable. Um, this is even more affordable yet. Sabrina the Teenage Witch house in Freehold, New Jersey was only 430000 
So we're coming down here, coming down. Still too expensive for Bilber Belly, but... Um, <laughs> So this one is really going to depress you. The uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air is not actually in Bel-Air. It's in uh, Los Angeles. Um, I know now you're not going to be able to sleep at night. Um, but that was listed for $8.8 .8 million in Bel-Air, California. Um, and then what's this really affordable, we're going to round it out, affordable is the Everybody Loves Raymond House in Merrick, New York at a cool half million. So that'll get you that one. So anyway, yeah, a little more affordable toward the end. Again, still out of Bill Brevelde's league, but I want to continue this parade of homes right into homes of Jesus' day. Um, but leading up to the homes of Jesus' day, I want to pick up the narrative of Jesus' life, especially his ministry, as he heads south to the Jordan River, where he is baptized by John the Baptist. And scholars uh, guess that Jesus was baptized somewhere in this area where the arrow is pointing to on the Jordan River, a little north of the Dead Sea. So Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist as this commissioning for his ministry. And then John gives us a little window into the people that were present around Jesus' baptism because John is the lone non-synoptic gospel. And so he gives us a little window into these people that are around at his baptism. He says, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. That means John the Baptist. John the Baptist was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John the Baptist looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. And they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, Jesus said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where Jesus was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. So these two followers... One is Andrew, and the other, scholars believe, is the apostle writer John, because John tends to leave his name out of stories that he participated in. And so these John, the gospel writer, and Andrew follow Jesus, and I imagine this kind of awkward situation where they're just kind of following, and eventually Jesus turns around, and he's like, what do you want? You know? And these guys are like, where are you staying? I can imagine them kind of being like, you ask him, you know, and it's like, okay, oh yeah, yeah, uh, uh, where are you staying, sir, you know, and Jesus says, ah, you come follow me and you'll, you'll find out, and so Jesus leads them to the house where he's staying, and they hang out for the rest of the day, and cultural expectations would have said that Jesus likely would have made a meal for these men, because he invited them into the house where he was staying. Here's what Bob Ronglin says, he says, we don't know what they talked about, meaning Jesus, Andrew, and John, or how long Andrew and John stayed, but cultural expectations would have demanded that Jesus offer them a meal. Okay. So we pick up the story. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. So Andrew's one of these followers. And Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus, and looking intently at Simon, Jesus says, your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. So Andrew and John are with Jesus, and they're spending that afternoon at the home that he's staying, and they realize this guy is the Messiah. And Andrew says, I got to get my brother, because he's got to meet the Messiah. So Andrew goes out, grabs Peter, and you hear Jesus confer the new name upon Peter in that moment. Cephas, which means Peter. So you have these three men who have already met Jesus right around his baptism. And from there, Jesus goes out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days 
undoes the wilderness wandering of 40 years by being tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. And then from the temptation in the wilderness, he heads north again to this region of Galilee, um, to his hometown of Nazareth. In Nazareth, he goes into the synagogue where he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and reads this prophecy about the Messiah from Isaiah. And he says, that prophecy is fulfilled today in me. And everyone goes, whoa, this guy's just claimed to be the Messiah. This guy who we saw growing up in diapers and who went to the local high school and that we saw running around playing with his buddy, he's claiming to be the Messiah? Uh-uh, is what his hometown says. Jesus finds himself on the edge of a cliff about to receive the heretic treatment from a mob. That was the actual treatment of heretics as you would drop a man from a height of two people or more, uh, tie their hands and push him over a ledge. That was the heretic treatment. So Jesus is about to get the heretic treatment. Somehow, the Bible doesn't say he escapes from that mob that wants to kill him as a heretic. And so he leaves his hometown having been rejected, and he goes to the northern part of this Sea of Galilee, and he sets up ministry shop in Capernaum. And it's while he's wandering the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee that he re-encounters these disciples that he's already met. And that's when he makes his invitation to imitation. He says, come follow me. He meets up with Peter and Andrew and James and John. And some of us wonder when we look at that call, why did these men take Jesus up on it? It's Because he already met them around his baptism. He was already a known entity to them after his baptism as John records. So these men are doing their day job. They're fishing. Jesus invites them into relationship with himself. And then he goes into the synagogue on Sabbath day. And then our narrative picks up after Jesus leaves the synagogue. Luke 4 says, after leaving the synagogue that day, Jesus went to Peter's home, where he found Peter's mother-in-law very sick with a high fever. Please heal her, everyone begged. Standing at her bedside, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up at once and prepared a meal for them. And here's a neat scene of symmetry, okay? When the disciples followed Jesus to the home where he was staying, he likely made a meal for them. And now you have the inverse. Jesus is in the home of the disciples, and their mom is making a meal for Jesus. Jesus made a meal for his disciples, and now it's the other way around. The disciples' mom is making a meal for Jesus in their own home. Do you see the symmetry going on there? And this word, home, in Greek, is the word oikia, which comes from the root oikos, which means home or house, which is why Danon has a Greek yogurt called oikos. Hey? Oikos is a Greek word meaning house. Picking up on this, and they're slapping that label on their Greek yogurt because oikos is a Greek word meaning home. Okay? Let's take a look at a Greek oikos, a Greco Roman oikos. It would have looked something like this. Whole family line would have lived there. My grandfather, Elmer Verveldi. Quick story about Elmer. So he was a funny guy, and um, he would point to Elmer's glue. And he'd be like, that's my glue. (laughs) That's the kind of guy Elmer Verveldi was. Uh, But Elmer Verveldi, late great Elmer Verveldi, was one of 16 siblings. So the Verveldis would have had a gigantic oikos. All right, because you got grandpas and grandmas and siblings and aunts and uncles, cousins, grandkids, kids. Everybody's living in that thing, okay? The family line would have banded together to live in an oikos for several reasons. Number one was for protection. You notice they got protective walls on the outside of the oikos, uh, uh, oikos. and then you have um, a single entrance 
so that you could limit the traffic flow into the house because if someone, if raiders were to attack the house or if thieves were to attack the house, uh, there's no 911 to call. Uh, there's no police force to come and check out the crime scene. You have to band together and protect your family. Um, and then they also would have banded together as a family for provision. Um, and the shape of the house reveals the provision aspect of the family together. Because the, outside, the outer square of the house were these rooms where the living took place. And then the inner part of the house was this courtyard. And the family would have run a business. And in the case of Peter and Andrew in Capernaum, they were fishermen because Capernaum is on the Sea of Galilee. And so there was lots of fishing in Capernaum, big fishing city. So their family business was fishing. And so when these men were not out in the boats fishing, they would have been in the courtyard repairing their nets, cleaning fish, getting them ready for sale in the marketplace. And similarly, Jesus, when he learned masonry from his dad, uh, he would have done various projects with his dad in the courtyard of their family oikos. So this courtyard is where part of the family business takes place, and people work the family business so that you can take care of one another and that the family has an income. Because if someone gets sick, there's no health insurance, there's no social safety net, there's no Medicare, there's no Medicaid. Right, I mean, I'm really grateful that, so Bryn woke up with pink eye this morning. I mean, I'm really grateful that we can bring her to the doctor, get some eye drops, and know that it's going to be taken care of. Right, they don't have that option in Jesus' day. So if someone's sick, that's on you. Which also makes sense why, if you hear that this man can heal people, you would get your tail to that man as fast as possible. Because he can dole out healing. And that's what happened. As the sun went down that evening, people throughout the village brought sick family members to Jesus. No matter what their diseases were, the touch of his hand healed everyone. This is a legit miracle when there's not the medical care that we have today. And you can imagine the people packing into that courtyard of Peter and Andrew's oikos just to get a glimpse of this man Jesus. And maybe, just maybe, we can drag our sick family member up and he'll touch him so they can heal him. No wonder the courtyard of Peter and Andrew's family, Oikos, was packed with this man, Jesus. A couple of years back, 2014, uh, there was a man by the name of James Taylor who claims to have thrown the largest house party that ever hit West Michigan. 2,000 people showed up, like in a matter of 24 hours, for this going away house party that this young man threw. Let's watch the news story. 20-year-old James Taylor says it was a party for the record books, capturing these images while standing on the roof of his home with a crowd of roughly 2,000 people cheering him on. He says he successfully threw the largest party ever to hit West Michigan. I didn't force anything down anybody's throat. I didn't make anybody stay here until 7 a.m. or 11 or whenever it is everybody finally left. I didn't make this kid pass out on my floor. Like, How many people do you think were in your house at one time? Probably at least 500, but I, that's... In this little house? Oh, yeah. Taylor says his house got so crowded, people couldn't move from one room to the other, and the floorboards were shaking because of all the extra weight. People, like, literally, if you wanted to come in from, let's say, the garage, and you were walking in, it would have taken you 20 minutes to get to here. <laughs> so that news story actually went viral because of that pan down to the kid laying on the floor. It, it, it was all over social media. It's like, I mean, somebody get that kid some help, you know? <laughs>
I didn't make this kid pass out my floor and the camera looks down. I mean, it's just unbelievable, you know. But uh, so 2,000 people show up to James Taylor's party. 500 people pack into that little house that the floorboards were actually creaking. You know, and I just show you that story to, to imagine this packed courtyard of people who want to see Jesus, people who cannot wait to see this man, people who have somebody who's been sick in their family for years, and they want to get this person to Jesus so that he can heal them. Now, the culture that Jesus conducted his ministry in was shame-honor-based, which means that who you brought into your home made a statement about your status as a family. People would have paid attention to who went into your house, and that would have made a statement about who you were as a family, and Jesus is bringing in all sorts of undesirable. He's bringing into Peter and Andrew's house the sick, the lame, the demon-possessed, the people that society wants nothing to do with. And so people would have looked at what was happening with Jesus at Peter and Andrew's home with a raised eyebrow and said, hey, you hear what's going on at Peter and Andrew's house over there? You know, we look down on James Taylor's party because it's morally reprehensible, right? We should, we ought to look down on that. But in the same way, the people of that day are looking down at Peter and Andrew's family house saying, have you seen the type of people that are packing into that house down there? You know, and they would have raised their eyebrows as to who was being brought under that roof. The New Orleans Saints are the fifth best team at home in the last decade with a winning percentage of 69.8%. Right? Over the past decade, they're the fifth best team at home in the NFL. Our Michael Santini's own uh, Steelers are the fourth best with 71.1% at home. Okay? But, Michael, our Green Bay Packers are one better at home with 74.7% winning percentage at home over the last decade, right? Number two is surprising, Baltimore Ravens. I would have never guessed that. At an even 75%, and you know it's coming. Satan's team, 84.7% thanks, uh, thanks to their cheating. Um, anyway, so, yeah. Best winning percentage at home because they sold their soul. Okay, um, uh, so I say all this just to say that that's home turf, right? And Jesus' home turf looks like this. Jesus' home turf looks like this family oikos. This is where he sets up his ministry. This is his ministry hub. This is his home base. And he models the oikos of a family of peace as his home base, and then he gives his disciples the same instructions when he sends them out. Look at Luke 10, 3 to 70. Jesus says, now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, not a traveler's bag nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. And then he says this. He says, whenever you enter someone's home, first say, may God's peace be on this house. If those who live there are peaceful, the blessing will stand. If not, the blessing will return to you. Don't move around from home to home. Stay in one place, eating and drinking what they provide. Do not hesitate to accept hospitality because those who work deserve their pay. Jesus sends his disciples out to find oikoses of peace, to find homes that are open to the mission of Jesus, to find 
family homes that are interested and intrigued and willing to take these disciples in where they can launch the disciple-making mission of Jesus out. It is the oikos of peace strategy. This is Jesus' missional strategy. Then to an oikos of peace and to meet people and to begin to disciple the people around you for for Jesus. The oikos of peace strategy. Here's what Bob Rowland says again. He says, when Jesus told his disciples to greet people by saying, peace be to this house, he was training them to start their missional efforts by simply offering friendship to people in an oikos. The missional effort begins with the hand of friendship. If the home is willing to take you up on it, wonderful. Stay there. Set up your ministry hub. If not, it's okay. The blessing will return to you. Find somewhere else. Find people who are open to you. This is Jesus' missional strategy. Folks, the implications for evangelism and being on mission are amazing. I I think a lot of us, when we think of evangelism, I imagine preachers on the street corner wearing the sandwich boards with a megaphone, you know, and holding some sort of apocalyptic message, and everyone's tuning them out, or or I, I think about... Um, door-to-door, knocking on door-to-door, or I think about this, you know, like passing out tracts or some sort of, you know, you heard my story about the booth, like, are you going to heaven or hell someday, you know, kind of a thing. Um, I, I, that's what I picture when I think of evangelism or, or trying to debate someone engaging with Christian apologetics to try to convince them to believe the way you believe. Could it be that evangelism is as simple as, do you want to come over for dinner tonight? Because I think it is. I think this is the model Jesus gives to us. is an invitation into an oikos of peace. Evangelism is as simple as, would you like to join us for supper? This is something anybody can do. When the learning community team um, from our church was at City Church of Compton in our last immersion a couple weeks ago, or several weeks ago. Um, The geography of City Church of Compton has three homes that are on the church property, and then there's also a house next to the church property, and last time I was out at City Church, uh, when I was still a youth pastor, summer of 2018, right before I came to Grace, um, brought the kids out, and then one of our jobs that week was to repaint this house next door to the church and then we had a plumber who came along, um, and one of our leaders is a plumber by trade. And so he actually re-plumbed the house. And so this is a picture of, you know, kids and I painting the house. And, you know, we painted Compton with love before we painted the floor, so we got that picture. Um, but so we're painting that house. And uh, we were painting and updating it so that a church family could move into that house and then rent um, next door to the church. And what's really incredible is that we got to experience, as a learning community, this oikos of peace. Because the first night we had supper at Pat and Julie's home. Pat and Julie are the pastors at at City Church of Compton, and and they're my connection to City Church of Compton. Um, Pat and I grew up in the same church, Hingham Reformed Church, together. Uh, And then actually, Pat, Julie, and I all graduated from Oostburg High School, and Pat and Julie were my Sunday school teachers my senior year of high school. It's funny, I was actually looking back at some old pictures this week, and I found a picture of my graduation party from high school, and Pat and Julie are in the picture. I I didn't remember that they were at my graduation party, but they were there uh, as my Sunday school teachers that year. Um, So they're my connection, but so we're, we're having supper at their house the first night, and the food comes out, and the learning community people we're with at the learning community are there, Pat and Julie are there, and 
All these other people start showing up. These other families start showing up from the church. And community broke out. I mean, it was crazy. Some sat at the some sat at the counter, some sat at the dining room table, some sat in the living room, some people sat outside on the patio. It just was like church family members just start showing up. We got an elder who lives a couple blocks away. He was showing up. It just, community broke out, right? It was amazing. And, and then Pat told us, he said, he said, yeah, you know, sometimes uh, there's evenings where I don't have a supper plan. I mean, how, many, how often do we have that, right? Anyone ever, ever like, what's for supper tonight, right? <laughs> I don't know, no plan. Okay, I guess going out is the plan. Um, but uh, so... They don't have a supper plan, so he'll walk over to Arnaldo's house. Arnaldo is the Spanish pastor who lives on the campus of City Church. And so he'll walk over and knock on the door and say, Arnaldo, you, what, what are you doing for supper? I was like, ah, I got some veggies, you know. And Pat will say, well, I got a frozen pizza. And so they'll bring, Arnaldo will bring the veggies, and Pat will bring the frozen pizza, and they got supper. And their families are eating supper together. No plan ahead of time. It's just the plan that comes into existence in this oikos of peace. I'm preaching this two-week series, Organic Vision, because I want to highlight and make much of these things that the Lord just seems to be drawing out of us. And last week I talked about how the Lord seems to be drawing out of us this theme of discipleship. And this week I'm talking about this theme of gathering that the Lord seems to be drawing out of us. I call this organic vision because I learned once upon a time that vision is defined as your preferred picture of the future. I feel in many ways that God is painting for us a picture of the future of our churches, Grace 242, and what he would love to see um, out of us. And what I love is I don't feel like he's pressing an agenda. He's just drawing this stuff out of us, saying, wouldn't it be beautiful for my church at Grace 242? God says, my church at Grace 242, if this was their future. And so we've sensed this theme of discipleship, the replication of a follower of Jesus in the life of another. And then we've also sensed this other theme of simply gathering. And as you know, there's goals attached to these themes. And so the goal attached to the theme of gathering for the next six months is that every family unit at Grace 242 would be invited to gather. Now, I know right away you have all these questions. Well, who's gathering and who's keeping track and what are the metrics and what does it mean to gather and what does that qualifies for that? And, what is it, you know, and, and I'm reticent to put more boundaries around it because organic has been one of these words that's been our driving word. Also, lightweight, low maintenance has been another uh, metric for us or another boundary as we put together these goals. And so what I'll do is rather than try to define this goal more than what it is, I'll just tell you a story. I'll tell you a story of something that I feel lives into the spirit of this goal. Okay? And they don't know I'm going to say this, and they don't even know that this was part of this. They don't know. Okay? It just happened organically, which is why I'm highlighting this. And it's something that happened to me. A couple weeks ago, uh, it was late at night, it was about 7.45. I hadn't had supper yet, and apparently Jim Plowman had not had supper yet either. Right? Jim says to me, hey, you want to come over for supper? Pratsy made a bowl of chicken noodle soup. I'm like, I would absolutely love that. I need supper? Okay, right? So I go to Jim Plowman's house. This is nothing fancy. We sit down at the kitchen table. You're even standing eating your bowl of soup. So this is like as casual as it gets. And no, wor right? no worries, no cleaning of the house ahead of time. I just come in. She's got the bowl of soup. It's the best chicken noodle I've ever had. As soon as I ate this, as soon as I took a bite, you ever had this? I'm thinking to myself, 
how can I make the time between me eating this now and next as short as possible? <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. Like, like I want to make that time period between eating this now and eating it next like as short as humanly possible. So, so I eat three bowls. <laughs> three bowls, full, full bowls. Like, oh, you might be going over the edge there, Bill. Like, be careful. Like, oh, heaping that up. You know? Like, anyway, delicious. And we just sat and talked, and it lasted about an hour. And then I was on my way home. No plan, no cleaning the house ahead of time, didn't last forever. I was organically invited into an oikos of peace. And you guys, you, you did not know about this goal. You did not know. I'm just highlighting it, that I feel that's something that happened to me that I want to see happen in our community. Inviting into an oikos of peace. This is as simple as, hey, family's getting pizza here on Friday night. You want to bring your family over? Who cares if the house is messy? My house is in a perpetual state of mess. People expect that. This could be as simple as, hey, you're leaving church. We need lunch. You guys need lunch? Oh, we're headed up to out in Cedarburg. You want to come grab something with us? Or, hey, we got, we got a bowl of soup at home. You want to come for, join us for lunch? And you stay there an hour and you're on your way. This is how simple this missional strategy is. We've made it complicated. And I'm trying to show you how simple Jesus makes it. So I could talk more about this, but maybe I'll just highlight this goal with one more story that I think is living into the spirit of what we're trying to accomplish here. So one of my heroes, as you know, is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's on my sticker on my computer here. Um, he was a pastor during World War II in Germany. He was in the thick of it. And there's just so much to admire about this man. And one of the things that I admire is, one of the many things that I admire, is that he truly took the mission of Jesus and Jesus' way of making disciples seriously. And one of the ways in which he lived into this mission is as a teacher and as a professor, he had students, and he had these seminary students, um, all underground, you know, in, in Germany in World War II. He's training up these seminary students under the nose of the Reich. Just awesome, subversive, love it. Um, and so he opened up his life to these students, including his family home. So Bonhoeffer was brilliant. He was born into a brilliant and successful, high-class family, highly educated, um, well-known. And so what he did is he opened the doors of his family oikos to his students, and one of his students talks about being invited in to the family life of the Bonhoeffers. These bon the, the Bonhoeffer family would have these musical nights where people would bring their instruments and they just play and make music. And Bonhoeffer would invite his students under the roof of his parents into their family oikos to be part of these musical evenings. So here's an excerpt from Eric Metaxas' biography about Bonhoeffer. So another student, Otto Dudzis, so this is Bonhoeffer's student Otto, recalled that Bonhoeffer invited students to the musical evenings at his parents' home. Whatever Bonhoeffer had and whatever Bonhoeffer was, he made that accessible to others. The great treasure Bonhoeffer possessed was the cultivated, elegant, highly educated, open-minded home of his parents, which he introduced his students to. The open evenings, which took place every week or later every other two weeks, every two weeks, had such an atmosphere that they became a piece of home for us as well. Also, Bonhoeffer's mother entertained in the best possible way. Even when Bonhoeffer went to London in 1943, his parents continued to treat these students like family, including them in the larger circle of their society and home. 
Bonhoeffer did not separate his Christian life from his family life. His parents were exposed to other bright students of theology, and his students were exposed to the extraordinary Bonhoeffer family. This is Oikos of Peace.